Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to the Big T Trauma Series on Behind the Knife. In this series, we cover clinically oriented material that focuses on how best to care for traumatically injured and critically ill patients. My name is Patrick Georgioff, Trauma Surgery Fellow at the University of Texas Memorial Hermann Red Duke Trauma Institute in Houston, Texas. And today I'm joined by Teddy Puzio, also a Trauma Surgery Fellow at the University of Texas in Houston. And today we're going to cover TBI. All right, let's get started by talking about TBI epidemiology. So why is this an important topic? Sure. So some numbers. Uh, traumatic brain injury is definitely a big medical and social problem. It's an estimated 10 million cases leading to hospitalization or death each year worldwide. In the United States, trauma is the leading cause of death in individuals aged 1 through 45, and TBA, TBI accounts for the majority of these uh, deaths, was over 50,000 deaths per year. All right, Patrick, so let's start... When we talk about TBI, I start from the very beginning. So what are the two overall components to a TBI? Right. So you're talking about secondary, uh, primary, excuse me, primary and secondary brain injury. So primary brain injury is the initial insult that occurs from the impact itself. And so the only way to pre- pre- prevent this is um, through different prevention methods, wearing a helmet, not getting injured in the first place, et cetera. Whereas secondary brain injury is uh, results from metabolic and physiologic derangements. And so most of TBI management itself is targeted at preventing uh, and or reducing secondary brain injury. Yeah, that's kind of where we come in is reducing that secondary injury. But, you know, why are we even talking about this? Isn't traumatic brain injury something for the neurosurgeons to manage? Sure. So neurosurgeons are certainly a, if not the critical player in management, but... In most settings, trauma surgeons are primarily responsible for managing these patients and certainly responsible up front. And during general surgery training, uh, you will um, have undoubtedly taken care of TBI patients and you're going to be expected to. So it's a good thing to know. So, Teddy, let's get into some of the uh, nuts and bolts. So where does the care of the TBI patient truly begin? So, you know, these patients, the care for them begins in the pre-hospital setting. This is a critical aspect of their care because the acutely injured brain is vulnerable to physiologic derangements uh, at the very onset, such as hypotension, hypercarbia, and hypoxemia. Um, So, Patrick, let's let's take a case and work through it um, and some of their care. Sounds good. So you have a 45-year-old motorcyclist who was thrown from their bike at highway speeds. All right, let's go. Sure. So ATLS, right, where you want to do an effective and efficient uh, primary, secondary surveys. It starts with A, right? Uh, And there are three kind of big categories why a TBI patient might need uh, airway protection. Uh, uh, And those are for uh, poor mental status, certainly from a severe TBI. Those with bad facial trauma, uh, a lot of uh, face injuries occur uh, in conjunction with traumatic brain injuries, and or those that are extremely combative. Uh, so, Teddy, what uh, what's the best way to secure an airway in these patients? With a knife? Uh, no, no. <laughs> just kidding. Might be our favorite, but not not always the best. So, the best way, um, the most efficient way, is usually um, with an oral tracheal intubation. Um, but again, in patients that have concomitant maxillofacial trauma, you should be ready to perform a surgical airway with a knife. 
So these patients should get rapid sequence intubation um, to prevent potentially transient hypertension, tachycardia, and increased ICP. Um, they should be ventilated at a rate of 10 to 12 breaths per minute uh, in adults and 20 to uh, about 25 for children. Um, you want to make sure that you have adequate oxygen set up to when you bag valve mask them. You want to avoid aggressive hyperventilation um, because this can cause cerebral vasoconstriction and in a sense already decreasing um, what they have is their cerebral blood flow. Um, so when would you ever intentionally hyperventilate a patient? Right. So in a patient with pending herniation, right, this is a therapeutic approach too. But uh, Teddy, without a CT scan then, how would you know? That this is actually happening. Yeah, this is a good point. This is one of those like abscite questions they like to test on. So the Cushing's reflex. This is uh, a patient with a TBI who develops hypertension, bradycardia, and an abnormal breathing pattern. This is uh, usually a signal of impending herniation. Uh, and in the pre-hospital trauma setting, really the treatment for this is what I was taught uh, in EMS as high-flow diesel, meaning get them as quickly as you can to the hospital that can care for these trauma patients. High-flow diesel. Yeah, I love it. I've actually never heard that, and I love <laughs> it. Um, awesome. So so what are some other critical aspects of pre-hospital care for the TBI patient, Teddy? All right, so we talked about airway. Uh, a couple more things. One is to avoid hypotension. It's critical. So these patients... Really, we know that any episode of hypotension can out worsen the outcomes for TBI patients. Um, in a multi-system trauma patient, most likely hypotension is hemorrhage. So um, we should treat hemorrhage, uh, we, if we can, with tourniquets and potentially um, replace the volume with ideally blood if we have it available, but if not, we should give them isotonic uh, crystalloid. Right, now I'm gonna refer all of our listeners to, there's a two part, we do two episodes on transfusion medicine for the trauma patient and, and cover uh, whole blood, uh, one-to-one-to-one transfusion, reversal, tag, etc. cetera, in, in painstaking detail. Blood is good. Blood is good. Um, all right, the second critical aspect of pre-hospital care is for any, um, patient with a low GCS, they should be treated as if they have a spinal, a cervical spine fracture until proven otherwise. Um, so once you, um, after respiratory and hemodynamic stabilization, the patient should be, you know, kept on a, in a neutral position on a hard surface. You should maintain cervical control throughout all the airway maneuvers that you're doing um, and put them in a C collar as soon as you're able to. Um, what about GCS, Patrick? This is yeah. probably a good time to talk about GCS. Yeah. Before I talk about GCS, I'll also put another plug in for the spinal cord injury uh, talk, which goes into a lot of detail about C-collars, inline mobilization for intubation, how you clear C-collar imaging, all that kind of stuff as well. But uh, back to so GCS. So, so GCS stands for Glasgow Coma Scale. Uh, the, the system was originally developed in the UK uh, in 1974 for patients with altered levels of consciousness, and it's now the cornerstone for assessing and comparing patients with TBI. And as we uh, most always know, the GCS score is a sum of three components. So you get up to four points for eyes, five for verbal, and six for motor. And certainly the lowest, uh, everyone gets a three at least, and the highest score being a 15. Um, And the motor score uh, provides the most points and is actually uh, the most highly uh, relevant for prognosis um, uh, amongst uh, all these individuals, the three components. 
So it's also important to remember that GCS score allows us to define what uh, how severe a head injury is, and this helps us with initial triage and and management. And so a GCS of 13 to 15, as you probably remember, reflects a mild TBI, whereas GCS of 9 to 12 is moderate. Anything less than 9 is severe. All right, Teddy. So. Um, in the field at this after this accident, we find that this our patient has a GCS of eight. Okay, so it's severe GCS, and they get they get intubated, um, and the medics apply a cervical column. They put them on a rigid backboard, and now they're coming uh, into your trauma bay. So, what are some of the things uh, you want to know about this patient? Yeah, I think I think this is an important point because we, you know, as trauma providers, sometimes just lose focus that EMS has spent a considerable amount of time with these patients, and you can really get a fair amount of information from them that's useful. Um, so specifically, especially if they're intubated, you want to find out what their pre-hospital GCS was sure. and kind of what led them to need an intubation. Um, were they moving all their extremities um, and what meds they got for intubation, which would kind of tell you to expect whether or not they still have paralysis. Yeah, and I think that whole, what was their exam, really asking as many questions as you can to find out what they were doing before they were given meds, uh, you know, rapid sequence intubation is is critical to be able to compare and, and or relay to maybe your neurosurgical colleagues or at least for yourself once you go on managing this patient. Yeah, you know, the other, uh, other couple things are, you know, what did the scene look like? Sure. The EMS providers love to show pictures of um, MVCs and stuff, but... It is helpful to see how much damage the actually the patient's car, what they were in, were they ejected, and whether or not there was extrication. That kind of all tells you about the injury pattern that the patient experienced. Um, what do you start to look for in the patient, Patrick? Besides, you know, their GCS. Right. So, as as part of our primary and secondary surveys, right, uh, think about pupils. So, pupil exam is critical. So, anisocoria or unresponsive people may represent herniation. It's important to note that. Um, and also there is uh, certainly uh, a misconception that pupil reactivity um, is affected by paralytics, when in fact it's, it's not. So if a patient has uh, very recently even received a dose of paralytics, their pupils will and should uh, uh, be reactive uh, unless they have some type of pathology that's causes them not to be reactive. So um, uh, a pretty interesting. That's, I think, the very common misconception. Yeah, very, very common. Um, and we I look for look for bleeding or CSF drainage from the ears, from the nose as well. That could indicate a, a basal or skull fracture. So you can you remember the halo sign where you take the fluid that's coming out of their ears to figure out if it's CSF, and you put it on a, a piece of gauze and see if there's a ring around that, and that can tell you whether or not it's CSF. And what so the, the color around the ring is. Or it's, what's, the, what's the color pattern? It's just a like a clear fluid, and then yeah. okay. Uh, all right. So after I think we do all these things, once we get them settled out, do this exam, get the story, we're going to talk about getting them scanned as soon as possible. And then let's say this patient specifically ours that we're dealing with is hemodynamically stable. Okay. Remember GCS of eight intubated at the, in in the scene at the scene. So no other major injuries on our primary and secondary survey, um, and and we're going to go to the CT scanner. So what scans are you going to order? Yeah. So for this patient specifically, I'm going to order a PAN scan, specifically a non-contrast CT scan. The gold package. That's right. <laughs> the Cadillac. <laughs> we'll send them to the, the truth machine. So a non-contrast CT scan of the head. 
a non-contrast CT scan of the C-spine, a CTA of the neck for this patient, and a triple phase uh, study of the chest, abdomen, and uh, pelvis. Um, yeah, but so that's a good point. In regards to blunt cerebral vascular injury screening, um, we want to refer to our, our listeners to um, our neck trauma episode where we kind of discuss this in detail. Um, what about a CTA of the head, though? Right. So I got the CTA of the neck I mentioned, but not a CTA of the head. That's not indicated at this time unless we have a reason to believe that this patient's accident was due to a stroke, and then that led, then that led to the trauma. Um, but we're going to talk a little bit more about that in, in a bit, the whole CTA thing. All right. So let's presume we take this patient to the scanner, get him scanned up. Let's talk. Uh, let's go into like what, what the most common types of head, head injuries are on the scan. Sure. Uh, so uh, there's a, I'm going to list off a few. So epidural hematoma, subdural hematoma, subarachnoid hemorrhage, cerebral contusion, diffuse axonal injury, and skull fracture. So we're going to touch base a bit on each of these. Um, Teddy, why don't you start that off by talking about epidural versus subdural hematomas? All right. So the important thing to remember when we talk about an epidural hematoma are that they are most commonly caused by middle meningeal artery bleed, so usually an arterial bleed, often associated with a skull fracture. This is the classic in the book. Somebody gets clocked on the side of their head, they get a skull fracture, and they have this um, epidural hematoma. So these patients, since it's an arterial bleed, they can go south very quick. The, the now, these, are, these are the ones with the lucid interval, right? Yeah. Uh, initially. The old uh, talk, the and die talk and die phenomenon. phenomenon. And that's a real thing. We've seen it. Yeah. Th- you can have a patient that um, was initially unresponsive and then their normal GCS. And then literally I've seen them in front of us just GCS of three and have a rapid decline in their mental status. And what do they look like on CT scan? So when you scan them, you'll see a lens shape hyperdensity. Um, you know why that is? So I think it's due to the the spread itself of the bleed is limited by the suture lines of the skull, and that's because the dura is very adherent to the skull itself. Yeah, and that makes, which means these are relatively uncommon in infants and toddlers because their skulls are more deformable and less likely to fracture, and also in the elderly because the dura is extremely adherent to the skull. Right, so adherent that you'd actually have that space for the bleed to occur, right? Yeah. So why don't, let's contrast these to subdural hematomas. Okay. Yeah. So, so subdural hematomas result from the tearing of bridging veins, right? You talked venous, about epidural yeah. being arterial. So subdural tearing of venous brain, uh, veins over the uh, cortical surface, okay, or a disruption of major venous sinuses or their tributaries. And, and again, uh, these are venous bleeds and they're limited to a single hemisphere by the falx cerebri and therefore uh, uh, does not cross hemispheres at all on the CT scan. And, and, and Teddy, what are you going to see? On so the on CT, these are a crescent-shaped hyperdensity. Right. But So if you had a patient, so our patient, if he had an epidural hematoma or a subdural hematoma, as his only injuries, yeah. which one would he do better with? Right. So prognostically, patients with subdural uh, hemorrhage have worse outcomes than patients with epidural due to concomitant damage to the neural tissue, the brain itself. Um, uh, that's more commonly seen with subdurals. So, uh, Teddy, let's go over subarachnoids, right? Very, very common. Okay, so subarachnoid hemorrhage is bleeding into the subarachnoid space, which, if you remember your neuroanatomy, lies between the arachnoid and pia mater. Um, This results from a disruption of the parenchyma and the subarachnoid vasculature. So trauma is the most common cause of subarachnoid hemorrhage, 
but 80% of non-traumatic are due to aneurysmal rupture. Okay. Um, and when, you know, these subarachnoid hemorrhages can create the whole chicken or egg phenomenon in trauma, as I like to refer to it. Right. So what's that exactly? You talk, right? <laughs> so, so chicken versus egg, so it's, it's what happened first, right? right? Patient comes in, fall with a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Well, did they develop a subarachnoid hemorrhage from a spontaneous aneurysm that ruptured and then they fell? Or did they fall, suffer a traumatic subarachnoid hemorrhage, and then... Ah. So how do you figure that out? Chicken or the egg. Chicken so, or the egg. Uh, so you can, um, you know, if you have reason to believe this person may have had a stroke, right? Uh, you can definitely get a CTA of the head, which can identify a non-traumatic subarachnoid uh, uh, hemorrhage, which resulted from a ruptured aneurysm specifically. Uh, and so this is important because these ma- patients are managed totally differently. Yeah. So right? that so that is where kind of the CTA of the brain fits into the armor materium. If you have a patient that you're not quite sure whether or not it was trauma or, mm-hmm. you know, did they have a, a syncopal episode that could have been from a spontaneous aneurysm rupture? All right, Teddy, let's move on to diffuse axonal injury or DAI. All right, so um, diffuse axonal injury, these are lacerations or punctate contusions at the interface between the gray and the white matter. They result from rotational forces that occur um, with blunt trauma. So we we once thought they were the result of solely from mechanical disruption at the time of the impact, but we now know that there's a a component of fragmentation of axons, axonal swelling, and there's a whole host of research uh, and literature devoted to the actual um, what occurs in the axons and the neurons. Right. So, so what do you see on CT scan then? Well, actually, sometimes, most of the time, you don't really see it on CT. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, the gold standard for this diagnosis uh, radiographically is MRI, um, and, and on an MRI, it's graded from one to three. But the important thing to know is radiographic grade doesn't 100% correlate with prognosis. Um, and if you see it on CT, generally they have a more severe form of um, sure. TBI. Especially early, right? Right. If you see that from the Usually initial no, CT no bueno. scan, yeah. it's usually no bueno. Um, all right. What about cerebral contusions? All right. Uh, so contusions are heterogeneous lesions that com- are comprised of punctate hemorrhage, edema, and necrosis and are often associated with, with uh, other intracranial issues and injuries. Uh, and because they evolve over time, uh, contusions may not be evident on the initial C- CT scan, or they may appear as small punctate hyperdensities, which are actually hemorrhage, uh, with some surrounding hypodensity, which is edema uh, surrounding that hemorrhage. They, they kind of bloom like pulmonary contusions right. sometimes. So depending on their size and location, they may cause a uh, significant mass effect, and this can result in midline shift uh, and herniation. So... Teddy, what's the most common pattern for, for contusions? Yeah, so this is the coup contra coup. Um, so that's when you get a direct blunt force trauma to the head that can produce a contusion in the tissue underlying the point of impact. This is the coup. And then you think about your head kind of in a fishbowl that mm-hmm. moves back and forth. The head was in motion, um, and it strikes the rigid surface on the front. It's also going to go backwards and you're going to get a contusion on the cat- contralateral point of the impact, which is the contra-coup uh, injury. 
So, Patrick, before we move into secondary brain injury, let's just do a quick yeah. review. All right, so let's talk about covered we a lot. All right, so our, starting with the pre-hospital. So in the pre-hospital setting, it's critical to secure an airway if needed. If they're not protecting the airway, get that airway. We want to avoid hypotension, and we definitely want to avoid hypoxia, and we want to maintain spine stabilization. In the trauma bay, uh, the same principles certainly apply, and it's critical to check pupils and uh, once that patient's stabilized, to rapidly get them to a CT scanner. Again, uh, we mentioned this before, these are trauma patients, right? So they very well may have other injuries. We need to, uh, if they are bleeding, the first thing we need to do is stop that bleeding and resuscitate appropriately. Um, okay, so Teddy, let's say our patient who has a GCS of eight was found to have a small subdural on CT, but also some evidence of, of brain swelling. And we called the neurosurgery team, they evaluated the patient, and they don't think he warrants decompression. He does not need to go to the OR for a surgical decompression, but they think, um, and, and I guess for decompression, why would the neurosurgeons take him, take a patient normally for decompression? Um, what would be the indication for that? So if they have, you know, impending herniation, um, or they have a very large bleed on CT scan that they want to evacuate. Right. So our patient doesn't fall into that category, but they do actually think that an ICP monitor might be helpful. Yeah. So I, I think the GCS helps with that as well. So GCS of eight, intubate, and I also think ICP monitoring right. is kind of at that cutoff. Right. And again, and we mentioned that there's a small subdural, they also see some swelling on the CT scan. Uh, in, uh, they're worried. And so we're going to get a ICP monitor. So do you remember the Monroe Kelly doctrine? Cause that's what we're, this is all about. Yeah, this is the kind of the, the basic tenant. Um, so this, the Monroe Kelly doctrine d- describes that under normal conditions, the total volume within the skull remains constant and it's the sum of CSF, uh, cerebral spinal fluid and brain tissue compartments. So Cerebral blood flow remains constant under normal conditions via your brain's auto-regulatory mechanisms over a wide range of blood pressures. Um, And this whole thing is known as cerebral auto-regulation. But when one compartment is out of whack, um, such as in the setting of a hematoma, um, there must be a compensatory decrease in the other compartments to prevent uh, increased intracranial pressure. So in turn, this can cause a decreased blood flow to the brain. Right. And so then remind me how we we measure blood flow to the brain. Yeah, so this is one of those important um, equations that you should remember for testing purposes. Remember forever. Really, forever. (laughs) Yeah, especially when you're managing these patients. So it's important to know cerebral perfusion pressure, otherwise known as CPP, is equal to the mean arterial pressure, MAP, minus intracranial pressure, ICP. So as you can see, um, these principles are important to increase cerebral blood flow. We want to keep our MAP elevated, right? And we want to keep our ICP low. That's kind of the the tenets to um, brain injury management, um, right. so to speak. So, um, right. so, so the normal intracranial pressure, ICP, is about 7 to 15 millimeters of mercury. And uh, refractory elevated ICP, like you talked about, reduces cerebral perfusion pressure, and that can worsen secondary injury. Again, no bueno. So there are a variety of indications for ICP monitoring. Uh, most of these uh, are related to the severity of injury, like you mentioned. Uh, findings concerning for impending swelling um, or herniation on CT scan and or specific neurologic findings or change on a neurologic exam. Uh, and there are a lot, a very wide-ranging guidelines for this, uh, and this is really in the realm of the neurosurgeon. 
Um, but it's also somewhat practitioner dependent and group dependent. So your institution may have different practices for how often they want to put an ICP monitoring device, whether Bolt or an EVD in. Yeah. Uh, so we're not going to dive too deep into that today. Well, I think it's good. You know, you mentioned that it, it also um, involves evaluating for changes because, you know, these patients are dynamic, especially right. in the very early um, setting after a, a TBI. So things can change. Um, but if you were to put in an ICP monitor, uh, if it was indicated, how is that actually done? Yeah, so again, uh, this is for the non-neurosurgeon, so it's good to kind of review a little bit. But monitoring devices are placed via a burr hole, so a little, a little hole drilled into the skull, usually made at Coker's point, which is three centimeters lateral to midline and about 11 centimeters from the nasion, which is the most anterior part of the frontal nasal suture. And... The ICP itself can be monitored with an EVD, um, which is an ex- external ventricular drain, which is placed directly into the ventricle, through the brain parenchyma, into the ventricle. And that means that you can use it for therapeutics to drain CSF. Teddy's laughing because I, I, I think it's, I, it's insane I, that you I just I remember the first time the I saw this yeah. procedure. And slide it right through the brain itself, it's right in the... And they seem to always gnarly. hit the ventricles. The neurosurgeons seem to always hit the ventricles. Just, and it's... Crank away. Oh, that's insane. Yeah. Um, now, the other option, right, again, EVD sits in the ventricle. You can drain on You can measure the pressure and you can drain CSF. But the other option is a bolt. And most bolts these days use a fiber optic, a fiber optic technology to measure the ICP. And the biggest difference, again, between a bolt, a bolt and a, a EVD is that you can't drain CSF with a bolt. All it's doing is telling you the pressure. So why don't we talk a little bit about how an EVD is set up? Um, you know, I, this is kind of a... A point of it's kind of a black box for most right. surgical residents. It's really we don't do much with it, but I think it's important for us to kind of know um, just the basic setup. So an EVD is connected to a pressure transducer, which is connected to a collection chamber with height markings on it, and then the pressure transducer should be positioned at the level of the tragus on the ear, and the collection chamber at whatever height neurosurgery specifies. Um, usually, it's about five to twenty millimeters per mercury, depending on whether you're actively trying to drain CSF or not. All right. So again, this you you, you put the pressure transducer at the height of the tragus. Important. That's your zero point, right? And then you can move this collection chamber up and down. Um, higher or lower, depending on how much CSF you want drained off. And again, oftentimes rely on neurosurgery to give us kind of their range or what they think about, um, you know, this patient's uh, needs are based on their injury, their CT scan, their opening pressure when they put the initial bolt or EVD in as well. All right, so Teddy, let's say an EVD is placed and the opening pressure is 28 millimeters of mercury, so a bit high, certainly, right? Um, However, after the procedure is finished, the ICP actually an hour later, so everything's calmed down. It's actually right at 15 millimeters of mercury. All right. So why don't we um, talk a little bit about um, ICU management of these patients? Right. Right. So the idea of this part of of, of the episode is to get folks more comfortable with managing some of the day-to-day issues that come up with head-injured patients. Exactly. So pretend you're on call in the ICU, right? It's the middle of the night. Um... You're by yourself because you're attending your fellows in the OR, and you have um, a, a TBI, a fresh TBI. This patient, patient our very patient, our, we're our talking patient about, yeah. that we have to manage. So um, it can be unnerving, right? Especially for the non neurosurgeons. So 
But, you know, the, the good thing is there are several good guidelines out there. Um, and I would recommend that you look at the either the Brain Trauma Foundation or the American College of Surgeons TQIP Best Practice Guidelines, both of which are very helpful and very relevant. Right. And so before we dive into specific scenarios and specific treatments for these patients, I think it's really important to point out that what we are really doing for these patients and the most important important thing or one of the most important things we do for them is to provide good quality supportive care that really keeps that patient as normal as possible. That includes temperature, glucose, blood pressures, oxygen saturation, et cetera. You want to keep them normal. Yeah. I think, you know, in rounding in the ICU, we talk about all these different body systems Mm -hmm. and sometimes it's not as relevant for some of the non-critical patients. But when you have a TBI patient, pretty much every physiologic parameter that you're talking about on rounds is important for their brain and the long-term outcome of their brain. Right. It's because there's no silver bullet for TBI management. It's tough to manage these patients. There's no medicine we can give that causes them just to get better. So all of your critical care skills are actually needed uh, required to provide that optimal environment to allow for the brain to recover. All right, Patrick. So it's 2 a.m., uh, and you get a call from the nurse that your patient's ICP is 30. All right. So, so what do you do? Too high. Uh, all right. So we're going to dive into ICP management. Now, this is critical. This is one of the more active areas that, again, you're the resident on in the middle of the night in the ICU. You need to do something. You're going to be lowering ICP. That's a, a real thing. And so we worry about this because elevated ICP is independently associated with increased mortality and a worse outcome. Yeah, that that's critical. So just the ICP being elevated in itself um, makes things worse. So let's, let's talk about some numbers, right, right? We need to know what normal is. Yeah, we want our ICPs to be less than 20 or maybe up to 25, but you're really less than 20 millimeters of mercury. And we definitely want our cerebral perfusion pressure greater than 60 millimeters of mercury. So, Teddy, how can we ensure this happens? You are at the bedside now. The nurse is looking at you for answers and something needs to happen. How are you going to lower this patient's ICP? Yeah. So I, again, I think the first thing that you hit on is you're at the bedside, right? That it goes back to the basics. This is what you tell all the interns day one, but go look at the patient. So the first thing I would do is examine the patient. Um, I want to see if their neuro exam is worsening. Um, I want to see if there's specific signs of herniation that we talked about. So mm-hmm. are they having that cushions reflex? Do they have any pupil asymmetry um, or any other or either of their pupils? Yeah, fixed? any change, right, in right. pupillary exam. Look at, are they having posturing, which we'll cover? Um, are they having any respiratory changes? All those things are the things that I want to assess quickly yeah. at the bedside. Yeah, so I'm glad you said that. Again, you absolutely need to personally examine these patients and, and, and examine them for a change. That's why when you, you come on for your night shift, go into the room, examine them, get your baseline exam. And then follow them throughout the night. So, Teddy, you do your exam and there are no changes that you can tell of. And there's no specifically no signs of impending herniation. So what would you have done, though, if you did find something concerning? Yeah, so if if we did, um, I would have ordered a stat head CT and probably updated my neurosurgery colleagues. Right. Absolutely right. So any clinical change requires immediate evaluation with a head CT. So uh, let's get back to managing the elevated ICP. Remember, our patient's ICP is 30. We want it less than 20, ideally. Yeah, so, uh, you know, we've talked about this. Uh, we really like the American College of Surgeons TQIP guidelines because they set up 
ICP management in tiered algorithms from the least invasive to the most invasive. So, and you know, in general, we pretty much follow these algorithms. Um, so for our patient, we can start by, you know, I would do some of the non-invasive things to, to lower his ICP. So we could elevate the bed to 30 degrees. Um, if that didn't work, I would, you know, either start or increase the dosage on his sedation or analgesia. So, you know, maybe give him a bolus of fentanyl or turn up his propofol. Um, I would also consider draining some CSF if he had an EVD in. Right. So tier one therapies, raise the head of the bed to 30 degrees. Give the patient some pain control or some anti meds. And if you have an EVD, you can drain off some CSF. Okay, so let's say none of that actually worked. Uh, the ICP, you do all those things. You do them in sequence and, and no effect. Uh, in uh, fact, um, your ICP is the same. It's still 30. All right, so then you know, I would jump to kind of some of the more um, advanced treatments. So tier two treatments, this would be your hyperosmolar therapy, such as hypertonic saline and mannitol. Right. So, so again, I mean, uh, we're in the bed in the middle of the night, we're the junior resident. How do I dose these meds? You can't just say, you know, we didn't know what we're actually giving and how much. Yeah. So this is kind of a, 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 a hypertonic saline right. first. So Let's do that. Hypertonic saline, my favorite, um, should be administered as an intermittent bolus. So you can give 250 cc's of 3% over half an hour, or what we call um, here a quote salt bomb, which is 30 cc's of 23.4% um, saline over 10 minutes. So the sodium goals are variable for these patients, but you're generally shooting for a hypertonic um, 150 to 160 milliequivalents per liter. So that to that end, sodium is one of those things that you want to check very frequently um, to make sure that we're on the right track. All right, and back to basics. Remind me again, we're, we're making the blood salty for what reason? So that the um, brain doesn't swell. All right. So we're drawing, we're going to, we want to draw a hyperosmolar blood. We're going to draw some fluid out from the brain, decrease swelling. All yeah. right. So hyponatremia is bad, bad news, bad. Yeah. So you want to avoid that at all costs. Again, these patients should, we didn't, we didn't cover it from the beginning, but we should avoid hypotonic fluids in these patients. Yeah. What about mannitol? So mannitol, um, also given as an intermittent bolus, um, usually it's dosed as one um, gram per kilogram of body weight. Um, but if you're giving mannitol, you should also follow serum osmolality, um, which should not exceed 320 milliosmoles per liter. It's important to remember that mannitol causes an osmotic diure- diuresis. Um, so you want to be careful when you're giving it to a patient who already might be hypovolemic. Sure, sure. I said I don't know if I said osmolarity or osmolality earlier, and I don't know which one's right anyway. So, so, so if someone's listening and is offended, I apologize because I don't. Uh, we should note that um, studies of all kinds have been done and, uh, regarding hypertonic saline and mannitol. They've not found compelling evidence to suggest superiority of, of either agent to improve outcomes such as mortality or, or functional neurologic recovery. So, you know, the, the, the one thing that we should r- remind our listeners is that mannitol avoid in hypovolemic and or hypotensive patients, yeah. right? And hypertonic saline, you know, ideally they have some kind of central access. Correct. So those are kind of the limiting factors for those. Yeah, just like um, 
just like vasopressors. Right. If you have a good peripheral IV, you don't have to delay the administration of hypertonic saline um, if it's going to take you some time to get central access. But if you're going to be doing this a whole bunch, and ideally you have a central, you have yeah. a central line. So, um, all right, Teddy, you gave a salt bomb. Okay, again, salt bomb uh, uh, being. 30 cc's of 23.4% hypertonic saline that was given over 10 minutes. It's a lot of potato chips. It is. <laughs> the, the ICP remains elevated. So what else do you have in your tier 2 armamentarium? Um, so at this point, I would consider um, trying uh, a paralytic just to see what happens. Not not like start them on a drip. but You're, te- you're going to test the patient, yeah, right? give them a little test dose and see if that helps. And if they do, uh, let's say, so you do, let's say you do give a, a bolus and it helps, then you're going to start an infusion. Yeah. Okay. And, and consider other things. Cause you know, we don't want to indefinitely keep them uh, paralyzed. Right. Okay. So let's say you do a bolus dose of rocuronium, for instance, and ICPs remain elevated. Um, how do I know you're going to say that? Well, <laughs> Cause we haven't gotten to tier three. Yet. Oh, okay. So, so what's, what's in tier three? Yeah. So really not. Not anything that is a good option. You're kind of sure. when you're getting to this point, you're in a bad place. Um, so one thing you could do is cool the patient. So um, we aim for mild to moderate hypothermia, which is 32 to 35 degrees Celsius. Um, therapeutic hypothermia, it's you know been studied a lot. It doesn't appear to be effective for. So it um, does appear right does, to control ICP, but but not really shown to improve outcomes at all, right, which is a bummer. Yeah. Um, and last but not least, so kind of the at the bottom of the barrel, the hail mary is the decompressive crany. Um, and in this setting, a decompressive crany for refractory elevated ICPs, you know, a sub. This is when you a substantial portion of the skull is removed to allow brain tissue to swell well beyond the confines of the cranial vault, which again, going back to that Monroe Kelly doctrine, you gotta you gotta make the box bigger mm-hmm. for the brain to kind of swell out of that. These patients in clinical trials, this decompressive crany suggests that the procedure again is effective controlling ICP and life saving in, in patients who have failed medical therapy. But if you get to this point, these patients have a, a, an abysmal outcome, and they may be left in a, a severe state of disability, um, but you know, minimal chance of recovery. All right. All right. So, so we just covered the three tiers of ICP management, and that is from the American College of Surgeons TQIP uh, guidelines on traumatic um, on traumatic brain injury. So, let's talk a little bit about some points of ICU management, right? So um, some of the non-ICP related ICU management. Let's start with anti-epileptics. Okay. So, you know, anti-seizure drugs are generally recommended to prevent and treat post-traumatic seizures in the setting of severe TBI. Um, This is because we know that the incidence of early post-traumatic seizures within the first week or two may be as high as 30%. In patients with severe right, so TBI, not, not, that's a lot. I would say not uncommon. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> in addition, uh, a case series um, that was published suggested that approximately fifteen to twenty-five percent of patients with convul- with coma and severe head injury will have non-convulsive seizures um, mm-hmm. identified on EEG. Huh. So you can't even see them all. Um, and, and the use of anti-seizure drugs in the acute management of TBI has been shown to reduce the incidence of early seizures. Right. Uh, but it does not prevent the later development of epilepsy. So 
it works. Uh, early right. seizures can be halted with, with uh, anti-seizure meds. And so we typically give those um, for the first seven days. Yeah. Um, what about VTE uh, prophylaxis? Right. So this is a complicated one, right? And it really needs to be hashed out at the institutional level level amongst your practitioners and, and making sure that everyone's on the same page. Because on the one hand, patients with TBI are, are at much higher risk of developing venous thromboembolism and, and the badness that can come with that. On the other hand, an expanding bleed inside their brain could be absolutely devastating. Yeah. So in general, the initiation of chemoprophylaxis with either unfractionated heparin, 5,000 units, three times daily, or with anoxaparin, um, 40 milligrams daily, which is what our institution uses mm-hmm. in most, um, the anoxaparin, is recommended 24 hours following admission uh, in most patients with uh, CT stability confirmed. Right. But okay. again, so, so 24 hours after a stable head CT. Yeah. Right. But that's again, institutionally dependent and usually agreed upon at the institutional right. level between the neurosurgeons and the trauma surgeons. Right. And I think the other common time point is 48 hours, right? right. 24 versus 48 hours is the most, probably the most common time frame. but, um, certainly patient specific. And like you said, provider specific and you know that's obviously the neurosurgeons can tell us if they're more worried or they have certain reasons to believe uh, that this patient may um, is a higher risk of bleeding then we need to follow those recommendations yeah uh, so what about glucose control so both hypo and hyperglycemia worsen outcomes what what numbers are you aiming for teddy yeah so um you know we want to avoid extremes of very high or very low blood sugars and we target really a range of 140 to 180 right so normal Right, like we're talking about, we'll keep these patients normal. Yeah. All right, so before we, we wrap up, let's touch on tranexamic acid or TXA. So, a TXA is an antifibrinolytic agent that was recently studied in the CRASH 3 trial. So, the CRASH 3 trial was a really big, a pragmatic, double blind, randomized control trial that looked at the use of TXA for the treatment of TBI, specifically patients with a GCS of less than 12 or a bleed on head CT. And all the patients involved in the study got the TXA um, uh, within three hours of injury. At least that was the the interval studied. And the trial showed a trend towards decreased TBI-related death in those treated with TXA. And the effect was largest on those with mild to moderate injury, so GCS of greater than 8. And importantly as well, the administration of TXA was found to be safe um, and with no increase in any adverse events like clotting-related issues. So is this practice changing? Yeah, Uh, maybe. Uh, So this is a nuanced um, study, and it depends on really how you read it. And and there's lots of uh, editorials on this and and thought-provoking stuff online that you can read and try to sort it out yourself too. Um, overall, the effects were definitely modest, right, but, but also not harmful. So uh, I think this is one that we have to encourage everyone who's listening to this to really formulate their own opinion on and, and, and read up on it. Yeah, it's probably, probably good to tread lightly, but I think we should just leave it at that. Um, all right, last item of business. Which treatments should we not be using for TBI? Right. So steroids. We should not be using that. Found to be harmful, uh, so we aren't using that. And uh, study stopped early. Yes, right? <laughs> it did. Um, don't use steroids. And then, actually, every single neuroprotective medication that has ever been studied to tr- to improve well, outcomes. Which ones are those? What do you? What are some of those? 
every single one's like progesterone, erythropoietin, all these ones that had these really favorable. All the promise. Yeah. Well, yeah, they, they had the animal trials um, that showed improvements, mice, large animals, et cetera, uh, imaging improvements, neuro recovery improvements, very promising, very exciting. And they all have mechanisms of action, which were fairly well hashed out. And when it t- came time, unfortunately, to study these different drugs, and there's countless other ones um, that have been studied in humans, they didn't work. It didn't pan out. They yeah. didn't improve. And that's why it's so frustrating um, uh, for some of these, uh, um, you know, for, for research and for managing these folks. And we're talking about just maintaining normalcy in the ICU and let their brain recover. It'd be amazing to have something to, to treat with. But Yeah. The silver bullet, right? Yeah, the silver <laughs> bullet. All right, man. Let's, uh, let's finish with a quick review. All right. So... Um, important key points. Number one, avoid hypotension and hypoxia at all costs. Both of these worsen neurologic outcome um, over time. Number two, the Monroe-Kelly doctrine describes that under normal conditions, the total volume within the skull remains constant, and it's determined by the sum of the CSF, blood, and the blood tissue compartments. Number three, there is no silver bullet for TBI management, so all of your critical care skills are needed to provide an optimal environment for the brain to recover. Right. Basically right. make the patient as normal as they can be and let the brain do its thing. Yep. We want ICPs less than 20 usually. Uh, we want CPP greater than 60. Uh, if ICP is elevated, uh, the first thing you do, examine the patient. If the exam has changed, let your neurosurgical colleagues know and get a non-con head CT stat. So tier one management of ICP includes elevating the head of bed to 30 degrees, administration of sedation and or pain meds, and draining CSF if you have the ability to do that. Tier two treatment of elevated ICP includes hyperosmolar treatment like hypertonic saline or mannitol and the use of paralytics. Type three, or excuse me, tier three management of elevated ICP includes hypothermia and decompressive craniectomy. Awesome. All right, everyone, thanks for joining us, and remember, dominate the day. Until next time, dominate the day.